0: Welcome to part two of the first episode of Daoula, New Histories of the Medieval Middle East. My name is Kenneth Gowdy. In the first part of this episode, I talked about the problems with the idea of a so-called Mamluk Sultanate. and I also spoke to Professor Johan Steinmerchen of Ghent University about how the research he is leading is radically rethinking the idea of a Mamluk Sultanate. He's arguing that this idea was invented in the 15th century, and that instead, when we're talking about the history of Egypt and Syria between 1250 and 1517, we should instead talk about the Cairo Sultanate. In part two, you and I are going to be picking up where we left off, and talking a little bit about exactly where the inspiration for all of his ideas came from. So, Professor Van Steinburen... This is quite a dramatic reinterpretation and re-evaluation of the entire period. And I've got to ask, where does it come from? What was the initial impulse to start thinking about this? The
1: the origins of it can be traced back to the work that I I originally started with, that that dealt with the 14th century, with the history of the 14th century, which is a century which uh, was dominated by a long range of sultans, who all belong to one and the same lineage, the Kalaunid lineage. At the time when I started, my research continued to be looked at very negatively as a time of crisis. When the slave state was in crisis, why? Well, because we don't have slaves on the front, so something must be going wrong. And the question that was then used to look at the spirit is, what, what went wrong? I was never really very happy with that way of looking at it and tried to look at it more not in comparison with what happened before or to what happened after and then see whether things were better or worse. The 14th century has its history. There were people there, there were all kinds of groups and networks there, there were all kinds of historical dynamics going on and some were, went well and others were very wrong but still there was something happening there and we need to understand what was happening in the 14th century in its own right. And as I was working on that particular period, especially as a social historian, um, I got increasingly unhappy with the uh, explanations that the Mamluk Sultanate could offer me to understand what was going on and what I saw in my sources. Many of them being uh, very, very dynastic in the claims uh, they made and in the way they were written, which ill fit a notion of a Mamluk sultanate or uh, even worse of a, a sultanate in, in crisis because there were these sons on the throne. So one one big step was to acknowledge the fact that perhaps the Mamluk sultanate is a, a problem rather than a solution. As If we look at the 13th and 14th centuries, it is much more rewarding to look at them through a similar lens that we use to look at other political formations in the same time or just before or after in the same region and that they're all dynastic lenses if we look at how political the political formation is organized and how claims to authority and sovereignty are being made the dynastic element is central in this particular time period and if we sort of get get away from this notion of an of a syro egyptian exceptionalism or even an ahistoricism and connect it back with what was going on in the wider landscape of the region of North Africa and Islamic West Asia in that time period, then we end up with uh, foregrounding and accepting the fact that polities are d- dynastically organized. And this may well be uh, help a lot to explain what was going on in the 14th century. It doesn't necessarily mean that that the 14th century was meant to be dynastic or that the Kalaunits were meant to sit on the throne. But this is one of the many powerful Currents, or we might call them discourses of power that were present and that at various occasions turned out to be successful, resulting in a century, a Kalavunid century. And that was really sort of a just acknowledging the fact that the fourteenth century was not Mamluk, but Kalawunit, or dynastic at least, because we have a second period after the 1380s, where in many ways one could argue that Bar-Kuk is the Sultan Bakuk is doing the same thing. But this period was dynastic. Then that opens up all kinds of new questions. So one of the most important of com- of course, why have we been thinking of all this history for so long as a Mamluk Sultanate? When was this history Mamlukized? This, if it wasn't in the 13th and
0: 14th century, perhaps it was in the 15th century. So, all of this rethinking that you were doing that was coming out of your of your earlier research, it culminated in mam- the Mamlukisation of the Mamluk Sultanate One, the first of your ERC projects. Could you tell me a little bit more about MMS One and in particular what its objectives were? So the Mamlukization of the
1: Mamluk Sultanate project that that uh, was funded by the European Research Council between 2009 and 2014 tackled specifically this question of when did the sultanate really become Mamluk. Following up from my research on the 14th century, which is basically in social history, it looks at the social history of power elites and how they're organized, who are they, what groups do we see, what practices do they, do they proceed along, how do they relate to all kinds of institutions, I used the same research agenda to tackle the 15th century, thinking Mamlukization at the time, still as a social process, as a process in which the ranks of uh, sultans, emirs, and all their supporters and retainers were increasingly defined by Mamluks, by uh, military slaves. And so, what we basically try to understand in the Mamlukization of the Mamluk Sultanate project uh, is identified by the by the subtitle is political traditions and state formation in 15th century egypt and syria we looked in particular at one at this era between 1412 the accession to the throne of sultan Al-Muayyad and uh, not very long after the very symbolic execution of sultan faraj the son of sultan Barkuk, in 1412 and then we moved we took that period all the way up to the reign at the end of the reign of Azhar Khushkadam in the in 1467 1468 the accession of Sultan al-Ashraf Qaybay uh, and what we try to understand is who are these people who are these sultans but also who are their supporters who are the people around them how are they organized um, what are the networks of people who are coming and going in the limelights of power how do they compete with each other for power what are the the, the specific moments. What are similar questions of practices? What are the social practices of the time of institutions? How have they changed from the 14th century, and have they indeed become formal Mamluk? So that was the uh, first project that ran between 2009-2014. Looked at all kinds of questions of social history of the power elites between 1412 and roughly 1468-69. And uh, we basically used the prosopographical methodology. I mean, the source material that we have is very rich in all kinds of biographical data on people and their actions and their characteristics. That, was so, that is so for the 14th century. That is even more so for the 15th century. And so we basically developed a, prosopographical, a collaborative prosopographical database in which we collected all the kinds of information that we could find in our source material on individuals, on the institutions that they occupied, on uh, the events they were involved in and the way they interacted with each other in these events or the way they represented all kinds of, or used all kinds of institutions in these events. And so we ended up with a very big database, which uh, just to give you an idea, gives information or contains information on more than 3,600 individuals uh, and, and even more than 11,000 events, as we call it, things that happen and are, that are recorded in, in our sources. So it's very rich and that was also one of the problems perhaps we, we, we encountered that it was far richer in material than we, we'd ever imagined uh, before
0: what were the the main findings then you've got all of this information all of this data how did it change or modify perception of the 15th century did you find the the mamlukization that you were that you were theorizing uh, yes and no <laughs> well i think we, we
1: had several findings on different levels, of, um, very, on micro levels of individuals or people who we could say much more about than anyone any time before. Uh, but the main two things that I think that uh, I remember, especially from this, from this particular research project, was one that the source material that we encountered was so rich that we had to be very, very pragmatic at some times. So, we had five years of research and we still didn't manage to cover the entire, the, the whole set of sources and source material that we have. Our original intention of the project was to, to engage with the full 15th century, the long 15th century, even until the end of the Sultanate in Cairo and the Ottoman takeover. But soon it became clear that our material is so rich and so dense, so densely written, so informative. That, that's just a gigantic task that we couldn't perform within five years, even with the four or five people that we were at the time. And so we decided to, to um, rethink our periodization and to limit ourselves to the to the time until the uh, late 1460s. That was one thing. But then still, with that very mass of source material, uh, it was still a very gi- gigantic task. Another element that came out is that we saw increasingly is that perhaps many more groups than just our emirs and sultans were participating in the political process there were many others never defined by any nation, any issue of of military bank, or military slavery or mamlukness especially what has been called referred to as civilian elites who manned the administration and um, became increasingly far more powerful, took far more central positions at court than they ever did in the 14th century, which can be explained also as part of this state formation process where specialists, experts of the state, acquire a stake in the political order that also empowers them in various ways that do not necessarily have to be um, enforced with violence, but can be enforced with expertise or with all kinds of other resources, not at least financial resources. So there's all those than just Mamluks playing the game. And finally, one big result or outcome was that of the history of the Sultanate in this period being far more discontinuous than before. Mm -hmm. That is, if we look at the 14th century, we see and we accept the fact that this is a dynastic century. A dynastic century means also in social terms that there is one very extended household, very extended family with all kinds of relationships that revolve around the family that actually remain dominant in various guises and going through all kinds of transformations in the 14th century. But there's many relationships that connect one ruler's court to the other that can be explained from dynastic, from a dynastic perspective. This, this, this was not the case if we looked at all the relations and the references to relations that we collected this was not the case for this, this 15th century where we have between 1412. and and 1468 a succession of um, so we have a succession so in the 15th century we have a succession of five sultans between 1412 and the late 1460s 1467 but every succession we saw if we sort of mapped out the relationships that we that we gathered in our database and did some social network analysis on it, we saw that these relationships really clustered around these sultans, but there was very, very, very few connections between these clusters. So whereas the 14th, 13th and 14th century are in many ways a history of dynastic continuities, also in social terms, the 15th century, the period of the 15th century that we looked at and these five courts of five sultans are actually a history of social discontinuity. When one sultan dies and the the struggle for succession breaks out, the sultan or the new sultan who comes to power, who is victorious in this struggle, has to recreate this whole social relational whole of the court around him. And you see all kinds of new people coming up. Uh, between 1421, 22, between Shai and Basbay in the 14, late 1430s, between Basbay and Jakmak in the early 1450s, between Jakmak and Inal, and again in the early 1460s between Inal and Hushkanam. Every time again, there is this sort of this, there is a break also in, in the social relations that are that are recreated. These relations have been nurtured, of course, behind the scenes. They, they existed before, but it's new people who come to court. It's a new group, it's a new network, the power network that takes power with a new sultan. So the 15th century is a, is a time period of social discontinuity. And so if we go back to our, our uh, question, when was the sultanate Christ, Um We did not see it really happening in social reality rather the opposite. It was, it was not sort of a social reality of one continuous whole, it was the opposite. It was uh, very far more discontinuous than we'd ever seen it in the,
0: in the period before. So I think that leads very neatly into MMS2. The, the current project, which is obviously inspired by MMS1, is dealing with the findings of MMS1. What is it that MMS2 is now trying to do?
1: As the title of the project is, is a new EOC-funded research project that runs between 2017 and 2021, and that sort of copies the, the, the first uh, EOC-funded project by using the same main title, the Mamlukization of the Mamluk Sultanate. So as that title suggests, uh, we're still sort of not understanding the question that we originally posed. Where does the Mamluk Sultanate come from? Is, if, if it is not, not very useful to understand... Uh, as an interpretive framework to understand the history of this long stretch of time between the thirteenth and early sixteenth century, and yet it is being used if it's not emerging from thirteenth and fourteenth century sort social realities, and it doesn't seem to be emerging very much from fifteenth century real- realities either. Where does it come from? And we try. I mean, so we use we we pose the same question, but we expanded the question, rephrase it a bit. It's not just. The question of where does the Mamluk Sultanate come from, which is more a question of a field, and where does it, how does it, has it been developing since um, the history that it's talking about? Uh, but it's we've, we've rephrased it also as how come we as scholars today, but also many of the material that as scholars we use, so also people living in the 15th century, thought of the things they saw happening, of the many dynamics of change and continuity that they were uh, undergoing and that they were witnessing, thought about those those things in similar terms or thought about them as part of a, a wider political whole, as part of a political order that uh, we've referred to this, that transcended them, that was much bigger than them, much bigger than the events taking place on the ground, and that connected Not just what happened in, let's say, 1442 to what happened in 1420, but even to all the way going back to the mid-13th century. How come, where does this idea of the Sultanate as a long, very one of the longest existing in in pre-modern Islamic history until that time, where does that idea come from, even the social realities of things there's always continuous change and there's always new people coming and going. How do they manage to install themselves all time and again within this larger framework? So where does the idea of the Sultanate come from? And that's then we took as a central point of departure for our next, next uh, our, our second Mamlukization of the Mamluk Sultanate project. Is this political order, is this not just, is this a Mamluk political order is one part of the question, but the yet bigger is where does it come from? How does it keep things together whereas the things in social reality are hardly uh, kept together and then we turn to not social history but we turn to what we might call cultural history and we suggest that we think that all kinds of cultural practices play a, a vital a central role in creating cohesion where there is none uh, where there is no social cohesion they create cultural cohesion that more symbolic environment to which people can can connect and to which they feel they can claim belonging uh, rituals are of course rituals of power are one of the more, more, most the clearest examples of this but also other uh, cultural practices and the one that we foregrounded in our project followed also from one of the problems that we encountered with the first project and that's the wealth of source material, of historiographical material and so Um, we turned to historiography, to history writing in a second. And hence this, the, the subtitle of the project, of the second project, historiography, political order and state formation in 15th century Egypt and Syria. In this project, we want to understand this sort of, this intersection between history writing and state formation, political transformation of the period. How do these two things constitute each other? How does History writing as a political practice, sorry, as a cultural practice, contribute to creating to this this very powerful imagination that what happens in the fifteenth century is part and parcel of one political order, which is the order of the sultanate, of the Daula, of the Turks that has its origins in
0: the thirteenth century and is meant to stay forever, as it were. I think at this point it might be useful to have a, a concrete example from one of the historical texts about how on a practical level we can actually see this in a chronicle i think it's important to also mention first and foremost that
1: history writing in this in the 15th century is part of a wider trend in which history the writing of history historiography becomes far and far more important and central in the time period that we're dealing with from the 13th century there's Onwards, there's an increasing number of texts that really seem to culminate into our time period uh, on the one hand. And at the same time, these texts become very closely interconnected with the powers that be. They're written by courtiers very often, soldiers sometimes, and also scholars. But scholars who don't stand outside of political realities, but are very much engaged and part of that political reality and write about it. So the, the historiography from the 13th century onwards um, starts exploding, not just in quantity, but changing also in quality and becoming far more political, what we might say. It becomes very political historiography, interconnecting the, the world of scholarship and of Islamic religion with that of the courts uh, and, and of uh, the military that uh, re- represent the power elites at the time. Now, one of the very interesting, very concrete examples of how historiography in the 15th century uh, appears to be participating very actively in this creation of an idea that there's one political order uh, that transcends the discontinuities of the time, the fragmentation of elites, the, the rise and fall of power groups in Cairo. One very concrete example we find in a chronicle that is written by a, uh, Ibn Tahri Birdi, who was a courtier historian in many ways, uh, central or very well connected to various courts in the period of the 15th century and we'll hear about him more in later episodes. But what he does at one point in his chronicle, in, in one of his, his chronicles, it's a dynastic chronicle, by the way, is um, starts he starts numbering so whenever uh, whenever a uh, a new sultan comes to power and he, he awards a regnal number, not a regnal number that starts with let's say number one in the early 15th century and then goes on. No, a regnal number that connects that particular ruler in the mid 15th century to the an origin, an alleged origin in the early third in the uh, mid 13th century, where number one ruler number one uh, ascended to throne. And that sort of continues, the, the continuous line is created between that one ruler in the 13th century and ruler number 37, for instance, whom he, uh, a number he awards, Al-Mu'ayyad Ahmed ibn Inal, so the son of a Mamluk ruler who came to the throne, one of the more likely candidates to be successful. No, he wasn't. In 1461, he's presented by Ibn Tahrir Birdi as the, the 37th among the rulers of the Turks and their sons. Uh, and then also he adds to that that he's not just the 37th sultan among the rulers of the Turks. So 37, which sort of connects this particular Ahmed Ibn Ina'l in the mid 15th century to 13th century origins, very directly, but also uh, a second numeral, numeral listing that represents him as the 13th sultan among the Circassians. So there's, a, there's two lists that converge here and that create this sense of longevity uh, but he does it also for, for the successor of Ahmed Ibn Inal, Khush Kadam, who actually uh, takes over from, from Ahmed Ibn Inal in very violent circumstances and sends Ahmed Ibn Inal off to Alexandria where he's put under house arrest. Through this sort of numerical device, he sort of smooths, smooths that process and then represents this new sultan, Khushkadam, as the 38th sultan of the Turks. So this, no, nothing's wrong. Everything <laughs> continues as before. We just have number 38 here and there will be others. But the
0: order, the political order as such, is maintained. Isn't this, this is underscored by the fact that Khushkadam is then described at the, in the second numeral listing as the first of the of the Roman sultans, and so it kind of implies that sure you have this overarching structure, this Turkish structure going from one through to thirty eight, but even within that you've got alternative political orders: a Turkish, or a Cassian, and now you have the Roman one, and that these are these exist within the continuity; that these are these are transition periods, but they are transitions which make sense; that are part and parcel of this broader, much more continuous. Turkish, uh, Turkish political order, and you could compare it maybe with the way in which uh, dynasties in Western Europe take over and become the the king of, the, the king of France. It's a new dynasty in charge, but it's still the king of France. It's no nothing nothing Absolutely. to see here. France, the kingdom of France, has never ended. Absolutely,
1: and an, another another interesting parallel you might draw with uh, a sultanate that. Actually, it's very similar to the Sultanate of Cairo, though it's never been reduced to a Mamluk Sultanate, and that's the Sultanate of Delhi. Mm -hmm. Which uh, And the the reason for choosing the name Sultanate of Cairo has much to do with how the Sultanate of Delhi between the 13th and early 16th century in northern India has been uh, framed in in scholarship. Not as a Mamluk Sultanate, but as a Sultanate of Delhi, as kind of this sort of overall political framework that uh, allows for the succession of various dynasties. Some of these dynasties, there are actually five of them in the Delhi Sultanate. Some are Mamluk. Turkish Mamluks, others are of local Northern India uh, origins. And so this is indeed a kind of an overall transcendent framework of political order that is created here and maintained through all kinds of structural devices. This is a very clear structural device. We're trying to to understand even more how our texts uh, have have dealt with this perhaps in more subtle ways as well in smoothing these transitions, these final transitions
0: from one court to the other. So at this point, you might be wondering, what exactly is it that I actually do? Well, I'm part of a team looking at how this grand narrative of the Sultanate was discursively produced and reproduced through contemporary claims to historical truth in the 15th century. The reason why we've chosen to focus on the 15th century is that there seems to have been this massive explosion in history writing. But we have to remember that the creation of this material in the 15th century wasn't just a process of recording history, but of shaping and creating the past to put it into service of the present. So what this means is that our historians are consciously shaping how they write about the past. And our perspective is that to understand how they're doing this, you need to know more about what is going on in the minds of our historians, because you can't separate how they understand the past from who they were. Everyone sees the past differently. So the issue is how these different visions of the past can work together. We have already produced a list of 27 historians working in this period who produced some 74 works. We are focusing on the text traditions of al aini Ibn Hajr, Ibn Arab Shah, Ibn Thakraburdi and Al-Bakai. These five historians represent five distinct textual traditions that gave shape to about a third of the entire corpus, 27 works. What we want to do over the next few episodes is present a series of case studies which focus on some of the 15th century's socio-economic, cultural, religious or political dynamics and how our authors were positioned within these dynamics, their engagement with them through social practices such as competition and patronage, and their texts' relations with these practices. Basically, what we're going to do is we're going to tell you about our historians' lives and then start thinking about how their lives influenced how they wrote history. Hopefully We'll also be entertaining you along the way. We hope you'll join us for our next episode when we introduce the first of our historians, Ibn Hajar al-Askalani. Until then...